Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Our guest today is Nigel Ng. Am I pronouncing your last name right? Uh, Nigel Ng. Ng. But yeah. in the They Might Be Giants song, it's spelled it's, the same and pronounced the other way. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's complicated because there are people with uh, my last name and then they grew up in the West, so they go with the anglicized pronunciation. But if you actually speak the dialect of Mandarin that my name is based on, then it's Ng. So it, it's, it's, there's no right answer. There no, you just... Pronunciations. No, dude, you just gave me the right answer and I'm so grateful that you did. So my guest today is Nigel Ng. Now, I want to... I want to get it right, but I had thought, oh, I know that they might be giant songs, so I'm going to nail this. And then, <laughs> of course, I got it. Of course, I got it wrong. So for people who don't know you, because uh, I guess a lot of the people who listen to my the podcast are people within probably 15 years of my age, uh, though a lot of young people listen too, but, and they might not know you're uh, a comedian. You're also someone who has come to enormous popularity through social media on TikTok and YouTube uh, mm -hmm. by portraying this character, uh, Uncle Roger. But what, and, and I've become a, a real fan of yours, but uh, when I decided that I wanted to ask you to have this conversation, it, it was in the shadow of what happened to you this year, which, you know, over the past year, um, like I thought the grace with which you handled getting uh, attacked on the street I mean, like in the same year that your whole life exploded in a positive way was really kind of the way you handled it and expressed it, I thought was very beautiful and brave. And, um, and so I wanted to start by just asking like how you, how you are, like, how are you managing all the different emotions, um, of where you find yourself in life? And then also in the shadow of the, you know, getting jumped in, in, in the way that you that you did how do you handle how do i handle it <laughs> i never really um you just you just get get on with life you know i think with time everything time gives you perspective i think whether or not it's a good thing that happens to you or a bad thing and i feel like i'm saying this uh but you know be, being being how old i have <laughs> i feel like yeah, what are you, 28? Really are you 28 or 29? 29, 29. Yeah. And I'm saying things like time gives you perspective. Oh my God, that's such a pretentious thing for someone my age to say. But when I, after following being attacked, I was a bit of context. I live in London and I, like last year I was attacked by probably a COVID-related racism that's been on the rise uh, to East Asian people. It's very unfortunate. Uh, but I, I, I was attacked and... Yes, for a while, I, I, I felt fearful walking down my street because the attack happened just a few doors down from where I live, you know, and it's a very, usually it's a very nice neighborhood, very quiet residential street. So to be attacked uh, in, in broad daylight on my street is, has been not great, you know, like walking back now from getting food and then coming back home, going to the grocery store, coming back home, I have to walk past the same street. And there was a period of time of a couple of months where I was just fearful, you know, very, very alert. Uh, and I couldn't really be 100% comfortable walking down my own street. It's It's gotten better now. It's been maybe three months since the incident. Yes. And it's gotten better. How I dealt with it, I don't know. I escaped to Sweden for a while because yes. uh, I have a podcast and my co-host is from there. So sometimes I go to Sweden. So when the attack happened, I was like, okay, let me just go to Sweden and we can podcast together and let me just leave this place for a while. Um, so that, that really helped because you're in a foreign place. You don't get reminded of the things that happen, yeah. but then you come back and you still need to go through the, through the healing process. Right. So 
I think just just with time, and it, it it bugs me a lot less now. Now I just walk home and I'm pretty much back to where I was in terms of my level of comfort. I'm still alert, but I'm I'm a lot more. I'm less PTSD. You know, I have less PTSD walking home. Well, often people describe the year that they become kind of famous as giving them some kind of PTSD, you know, where there, because it is all sort of, and I know that there was a gradual rise in you becoming well-known, you were on Comedy Central, a bunch of good shit has happened for you, but there's no doubt that you, your recognizability and profile is just can't be anything like it was 12 months ago. And so a couple questions. One, how did you decide to be so open about what happened? Because you have this character you portray, Uncle Roger, who uh-huh. I love for his inner goodness, even though he's cranky and curmudgeonly, yeah. uh, which is funny because he's probably younger than me, your uncle. You know, I'm 54. Maybe he's my age or 50. But yeah, he's to 50. Me, he's 50. Yeah, he's 50. Yeah. He's this old curmudgeon, even though he's a couple years younger than I am. But... There's this sweetness to him and, and, and not an innocence to him, but a hopefulness, even as he's calling stuff out. Uh, and, you know, man, like, it's a, it's a broadly appealing act. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you then did this really personal, intimate series of posts about what happened to you. And can you talk me through how you think about your relationship with the people you're talking to? And uh, was it any decision to trust us in that way with, with, with this? And did it help? Good question. I think you, you nail Uncle Roger's characteristics on the head there. You know, this curmudgeon, but innocent and kind uncle, you know, who's very proud of who he is. And I think people gravitate to him because, you know, he's a very, very Asian uncle, the most Asian man you can find on the internet if you search Uncle Roger. But it's the fact that he's unapologetic about his Asianness, you know, and I think it resonates with people. Whether or not for Westerners, yeah, it's funny, you know, and for for Asians who grew up in the West, and I've experienced this before. Where I first, when I first moved to the U.S. from Malaysia, there are certain things I did that were like considered too Asian, and then you had to kind of not do those things because you'd be ridiculed a little bit by your peers. So the fact that Uncle Roger is so unapologetically Asian, I think it's refreshing and it's nice to see someone who's you know proud of their heritage. I think that's one. But when you mentioned the the intimate moment, the intimate stuff, the personal things, I usually do that as myself on on my podcast. And and you you run a podcast too, you know, like long form conversation, people ease into it, people divulge more eventually. And I'm also a comic, so as a stand up comedian, we are. The, the biggest challenge is to talk about make heavy things funny, you know, make the heavy personal stuff, the stuff that defines the human condition, you know, like love, heartbreak, death, you know, all, all, all that stuff. How to make it funny because that, that's the challenge because um, it's, a, it's a human experience that everybody's experienced before. What's uh, like, you know, get, getting punched in the face on the surface. There's nothing funny about that. But how do I find the funny part? That that gives me a lot of joy. If I can make something as dark as tragic as that funny, that's 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 a challenge, right? Yeah, but your initial posts were not. Fu- I mean, your initial posts about it were, I thought, I mean, you're funny, so there was humor in it. Uh huh. But mostly, it was incredibly vulnerable and touching and open. Mm. And yes, on on the podcast. So you know, I I don't know, like you know, I have multiple lives, right? Because I'm. Um, I write these movies and this TV series that, you know, 
on the on the one hand, I'm not a public f- figure in the same way. But then the podcast, I had to over years make a decision. But people then think, and in a certain way they are, that they really know me because they've been listening to me for a long time. Yeah. Uh, the character and even the stand-up, there's artifice. The moment of unburdening yourself mm-hmm. was a moment, it felt to me like you were asking the audience, your audience to actually... And it was really shortly after you'd talked about how you felt about people talking about the the ethnic aspects of Uncle Roger and if it was okay. And then I felt you were trying to say, can you see past a bunch of stuff to the actual just humanity of who I am as a person? Um, or were you not? I mean, maybe you weren't. I, that's fine. You can Maybe that's what I did, but subconsciously, that wasn't what I was thinking, you know? And I think where we go on social media... I think one very appealing thing is it, 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 you know, deconstructs the artifice, artifice, right? You have direct access to the person, you know, when, when some, anyone, any celebrity posts an Insta story, you know, sure. Sometimes it's their assistants posting their tour dates. Sure. But oftentimes it's just a person, a phone hitting the play button yes, and then they just talk. And I, th- I, I think that's the beauty of it. And the fact that I, ha- I can access, I have this group of people who care about what I say. And sometimes I just go on this this impromptu speech, you know, a few Insta stories. It doesn't take long, you know. Insta story is fifteen seconds. You can do four or five of them in a row, and and that's it. And I think people treasure that. And I grew up, no, I, I didn't like grow up like watching these, but I, I I love it when people do this, you know, when they show this realness to them. Yes. Because some, sometimes you see the typical Instagram influencer vibe. It's always like jet setting and they're at a beach. I'm like, you're, you're not always at the beach, man. Right. Come on. <laughs> you know? Really? You have no moments where you're stuck at the airport and the plane's delayed and you just feel <laughs> right. like, like shit, you know? Share that. Yes. Share that. You know, Share the realness with this. And did you get back? I completely agree with everything you're saying. I've been, uh, uh, just in the past couple weeks, I've posted a few TikToks just ta- really just talking uh-huh. about parts of the artistic process and I've watched and I didn't get verified on there. I know I just started talking without any followers and I've now watched what happens, the way people react to even that and the connection that they get to you just talking to them, which I used to do on Vine. I had a big Vine thing, but, and I, so I relate to it, but what did you get back when, when you really opened up yourself in the most vulnerable moment what what came back to you from your family of uh, people who are invested in you online it's mostly just nice things you know because i mean when they it only goes out to the people who follow you right only the people who follow you will will click onto it so if they already follow you chances are they kind of like you already so it's only been nice things right you know although i guess on tiktok it could get fed out to people who don't follow you right yeah that's that's true yes i mean if, if something gets gets pushed towards people who don't follow you algorithmically you know like on tiktok or on youtube then sure you'll get you know haters hate comments negative things but for my personal stuff is usually just on the podcast or my insta stories and that's usually just fans of me who tune in yeah i guess where i'm getting at is this because is uh is it seemed to me there was an aspect of it that was healing for you to share it and even though people often think about these social media things as being coarse and ugly the ugliness happened in the real world where somebody did this COVID racist attack on you. And then it felt to me like the healing happened. 
and the kindness happened in the world of social media. And I thought that that inversion was hopeful somehow about what this all can be. And I'm wondering if it hit you that way at all. Uh, no, I wasn't that. <laughs> I didn't think that much. It wasn't that deep. But in a sense, yes, it was cathartic to talk about it, right? Yes. And uh, yeah, it's, that's a nice way to put it. And I never thought about it like that. Good. Well, maybe good. Glad to be able to, <laughs> I can't give you, you know, uh, I, I don't know which pace to use. So hopefully I can give you something. Um, so how about the other part of it? The, the, uh, the 12 month or 13 months of you blowing up. And then I want to go backwards because I've read, I don't think I want to, I have a, a bunch of biographical questions I want to go through, but sure. I, I am wondering this first blush of real fame and people wearing t-shirts and wearing orange shirts and dressing up as you like i loved that you asked people to send you their halloween stuff and and it was subversive because some you know someone like me i would never dress up as an asian uncle you can't and you were like please do which i thought was fascinating and actually seemed like you had kind of reasons for it so i want you to talk about that actually about how you're using uncle roger in that way but could you first talk about just what this has felt like to you to become famous like this and make this level of different level of money and all that stuff. Like what's, how's it hit you? Uh, I would say like I'm Chinatown famous, you know, uh, people, when I go <laughs> to places with a lot of Asians, then uh, <laughs> I'll get recognized. <laughs> yeah. So this is not like, I'm not like Kevin Hart level or, or you know, any celebrity level famous. Uh, so. I don't want to, you're not being disingenuous, yeah. but you do have like three and a half million YouTube subscribers, dude. And that's, yeah. that's a big audience. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I would like to think it, it hasn't really um, got to me. I, I haven't really changed my behavior because of the fame. I think the only thing that's different now, it's now I realize when I make something, people will watch it. And as a oh, creator, yeah. that, is the, that is the best feeling in the world, right? That people give a shit. And that's what we work for as comics our whole lives, for people to finally give a shit about us. Yeah, the, the, I remember after the first season of Billions, I was with um, David Benioff, the guy, you know, he and Dan Weiss did, created Game of Thrones. And I was, and and he said, you're not going to believe what happens. And this is just when the first season was on. And he goes, when you go to write the next season and you know the way lines are going to land because you know this very specific audience that you have. Mm -hmm. He was like, it's a totally different and better experience. And I was like, well, I've been writing movies for a long time. He goes, no, no, dude knowing that this group of people likes this thing will change what you do in such a better way. So that I relate to that completely. Yeah, it does. It's, it's, a, it's a great feeling. And then you're so motivated to be like, okay, they like this thing. How do I make this thing even bigger, even better? Right? Yes. How do I lean into this sort of yeah. even, even more? Mm -hmm. And so for you, there's no negatives to the whole thing. Like it's been a, a, a full on positive. I think that the, the, there are negatives that come with it. Maybe like um, I'm a bit overworked, you know, but I, I as someone who, whose work has been impacted by the pandemic, you know, that is a blessing, you know, to have work. Oh, you know? sure. Right. Because you, in a different environment, you would now be selling, th you'd maybe be able to play theaters, which I don't think you've ever had. Have you headlined theaters before? No. And no, you, no. Maybe it might like small be small comedy venues, like 100, 150 seats. Max. Right. Yeah. But I'm saying you might now be able to headline that next, that next rung up, right? Or, yeah. or do the big comedy, you know, do weekends in the big comedy clubs, but you're not able to, to take advantage of that right now. 
Yeah, but that's okay. It, they'll they'll open back up. Yeah, and I think good. another negative part is probably the negative part that comes with um, anyone who's achieved any sort of success, right? You know, you start getting people who want things from you, people who come out the woodwork. You know, the um, yes. some some sort of people who just are trying to milk you. You know, so I think that's but that's for every type of success. You know, any 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 person, any career. You know, that those people will show up. Yeah, you you have to get very comfortable with the word no. Yes, exactly. And not yeah. think you're, you got to choose your spots, basically. A billion, uh, one of the, I think it was, maybe it was Mark Cuban said to us once, he's like, if, if you're the kind of person that I would pay your mortgage for you if you were in trouble, I know you're in trouble before I have to pay your mortgage because you're really my friend. Yeah. And he's like, so if, if you're calling me to tell me you're in trouble, it's you're too late. You know, you're too late. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, which was just uh, uh, interesting to me. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned that you grew up in, in Malaysia. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you describe, like, who were you as a kid? Like, how did you fit in to your friend group and at school? I was pretty normal, I think. Uh, I was pretty outgoing. I I I love just hanging out with friends and uh, doing sports. I played volleyball, basketball in in, in school. A bit of t- table tennis, ping pong because you know it's Asia. Everybody plays ping pong I'm and a, badminton. No, I'm a I'm very very serious about table tennis. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. I I picked it up a couple of years back. You know, and I was like yeah. you know, buying the proper shoes for it, buying the blade and the rubber separately. Dude, I have all uh, that. I'm right with you on okay. all that stuff. <laughs> and uh, playing a place uptown called Wang Chen in New York. Uh-huh. Where lots of times I would be the only person who looked anything like me in these yeah. place. Yeah. Man, so, I will not play like Asians from Asia. And if I see them in London, like I, I don't play them. I I know I'll get crushed. But so you did that you did that <laughs> stuff. Were were you um were you the funny one in, in your group? Were you an artistic kid? Were you in the plays? No, no, we nobody really did plays back there. Did we have plays in my school? Maybe like it's a very small group. But I was creative, you know. I would. I remember I I, I did music. I, I I wrote short stories and just passed them around the class, you know. And I was pretty funny. I wasn't I wasn't the funniest one in the class, but I was I was pretty funny. I, I held my own, you know. Well, who were the and and I I didn't know that um, Malaysia was trilingual till I watched some of your stand up. I mean, that's one of the things about being an American. Like, um, I went to college with. Uh, I had one friend who was from Malaysia, but it was a long time ago. And I don't, somehow I didn't really realize that everybody was trilingual. And um, so what, what language was the primary language you were learning in in school? Uh, I'll say most people are uh, bilingual. Some are trilingual. Not everybody's trilingual. So the trilingual was just bilingual. a joke. The trilingual was just for your act. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think half the people will be, but most definitely bilingual. Definitely. At least and, bilingual. And what are the three languages if people are trilingual? Uh. Ma- most commonly, Malay, Mandarin, English. And yeah. and did you speak all three growing up? Yep, yep. Mainly English and Mandarin because of my my the, the, the circle I grew up with and the area I grew up with, the area I grew up in. Uh, but yeah, Malay is compulsory. To, you know, you, you you will be taught that in school and uh, English as well. Mandarin, it depends what school you go to. But my parents again, they were very. Uh, concerned with me knowing my, you know, Chinese heritage and stuff, so they sent me to a Chinese school, which is why I kept speaking Mandarin. And were you? Uh, what did they teach in? Like, what were most of your classes in? 
during my time, they were most, I think 50-50 Malay and English. So if you took a math class, it could either be in one of those, like the math could be taught in English or Malay. Yeah, yeah. Depending on the teacher's comfort, basically? No, depending on the government's whims at the time, you know. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, there was a period of time before I went to high school, it was in Malay. And then when I started going to high school, they changed it to English, which was great because it's more universal. But after I graduated, I think it's now back to Malay again. Because I'm always interested when someone can think and tell jokes in another, you know, humor in another culture is very difficult, as you know. Like sometimes American comics can't even go to England and get over, right? Yeah. Be because the even just the British culture and customs is so different from Chicago, where I know you lived for a while. So, mm -hmm. but, or Evanston's close enough, but, yeah. um, ha uh, were you always joking around in all those languages? In other words, was your personality fluid throughout all the different languages? I, I would say so. I, I would say so. Yeah, personality. I mean, the it's hard to, you don't really change your personality when you speak in a different language, right? Sure. If you are less, if you're, if you're less, if you're not as good in a certain language, sure, you might not be able to, you might not be able to express every part of your personality, but I don't think it changes. You know, Americans are such idiots. Like, like we, I mean, yes, some of us speak two languages, but like I don't, and most of us don't. And uh -huh. so it always is, seems like just an incredible uh, thing. And especially to be able to perform in, in different languages and switch it up like that um, is kind of amazing. And when you would read books, you would read in whatever it was written in, basically. I'll try. I'll try. I don't think I can do it anymore, but uh, I mean, I you can't do read. Mandarin. You can't do Mandarin anymore. You can't do Malay read, anymore. Reading it. Yeah. Uh, both, both, because I've been speaking only English and reading only English for so long. But yes, in high school, I would be reading like Mandarin literature, you know. And you, that's amazing. And I, it's funny, I looked up a bunch of um, Malaysian literature today because I, I'm a huge reader, but I don't think I've ever, I mean, I've read nonfiction. I know some of the history and I've read nonfiction set in Malaysia with Malaysian characters, but I've never read any fiction like lit. I've never read any literature. And I was like, well, that sucks. Like, I, I don't have a toolkit I'd normally have to uh, talk to. We don't to have that many anyway. It's okay. <laughs> no, I looked it up. There's this one woman. When you look up like the best Malaysian books, like this one woman's got like eight out of the 10. So I'm going to definitely. Woman? I'm Googling it now. Like... <laughs> no, I just looked it up. I swear that she's Malaysian... a noir, like a literary noir she... writer. What's her I name? I don't even know these people. Okay, good. I feel better. Okay. Are you? Yeah. You're... You're making me feel better then. Yeah, yeah. When we grew up in Malaysia, I mean, we studied all over. Yeah, we had we had a few Malaysian uh, playwrights we studied. Okay, just one, just one, just one Malaysian playwright we studied. But we studied more of the Asian stuff, so not specifically Malaysian. And we, I, I think if we only studied the Malaysian poets and playwrights, you'll run out of poems really fast. Oh, that's it's really <laughs> funny. But uh, well, it's so fascinating about your character, right? Because I loved the other day. Or a while back, actually, when you were explaining uh, Haya and um, Fuyo and uh -huh. not just using them, but actually trying to, I mean, as a joke, you were like, everyone should use these words. Mm -hmm. But also I felt like beyond a joke, it's a way of inviting people into your culture. Yeah. And... And I would love it if everybody used it. And those words are words I used growing up, you know? So again, when people bring up the, oh, he's a racist caricature, I'm like, I grew up speaking like that, dude, you know? That's, is, I, am, did I 
was I a five-year-old racist caricature in, in Malaysia, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I just want people to know, like, uh, these words are, you know, aya is a very common Asian word in many Asian languages. And sure, in Malaysia, there's a specific uh, tweet to be say hi, yeah, you know? But I think it's just such a great, great linguistic thing that it expresses Dude, I want to use it all the, the time. Emotions. I mean, I, again, I, I actually don't think a 54-year-old white dude can use that expression. <laughs> but at home, like I, when when you get in the bed and the sheets are tangled up and you can't whatever, like what's better than saying hiya? Like it's yeah. perfect. It's cathartic. It's a hi, yeah. It's a sigh and a word and a sound all built in together. You yes, know? It, it feels like it. So when you're a kid, you're funny, you're not the funniest one. Um, what are your sort of expectations for the kind of life you're, you know, you're 14 and, and what are your expectations for the kind of life you're going to live, man? To be honest, growing up in Malaysia, it's uh, unless you were rich, you know, everybody kind of is on the same path. So I, was, I wasn't rich. I was just very normal. I think my expectation was, you know, you graduate high school. You go to a, if you're smart, you go to a decent university, uh, hopefully maybe in Singapore, it's a very common uh, place, a path to go to. You do a practical, sensible degree, engineering, uh, law, accounting, medicine, pick one, you know, and then you you have a stable job and decent career. And you, you in, in Malaysia, and figuring you would stay in Malaysia, that's like the idea that your family or the, Basically, because you've traveled the world. So, but when when you when you were a kid, you thought, well, this is my life. I'm gonna just go to a regular school, and I'm gonna get a good job, and I'm just gonna uh, just live a regular kind of existence here. Yeah, and a regular existence was existence was it was good, you know. Like I'll, I'll live comfortably, and I I did really well in school. So I probably yes. you know probably would think with myself, I might, I might end up in Singapore, you know, a neighboring neighboring country. But I never dreamt that I would end up in the U.S. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship for it. Well, I want to talk about how you chose Northwestern, and that's amazing. But I know that, like, when I went to school, the stories that I heard from the the one guy who was from Malaysia that I was pretty good pals with, he was three years older, so we were only at school together for a year. But at that time, still, uh, that would have been 85 that I was a sophomore and he was a senior, I guess. Um Malaysia was still super restrictive of a lot of personal freedoms. And um, what was it like? And then I know there was a reform in the 90s, but what what was it like for, for you in terms of all that stuff? How much was personal freedom restricted? Did you know any better or not? Or that's just what, what you lived like? I would say it's very minimal. I never felt like, even after I moved to the US, yeah, sure. I think you guys definitely have more freedom you know in terms of well, you like, could light up a joint i mean you could light up a joint without fear of yep death, yeah, for death sentence, yes yeah uh but again that's that's not like a big a big personal freedom a big loss of personal freedom right it's just drugs you know so <laughs> it's drugs and sure and you have probably have more freedom of speech you know there are certain things we realize if we say in public you might disappear you know, and um, <laughs> yeah, that's which, which that is a that is a, 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 a certainly uh, an encroachment upon personal freedom. Yes, that 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 would be that that's true. That's true, and there's more vetting of uh, certain things. Uh, well, I guess which is to say though that as a comic, as a funny person uh, in a culture like that, uh, does it make you have to be 
able to sort of really hit a target in a pretty surgical way, I wonder. I haven't done comedy that much in Malaysia. I've only done maybe a few sets there. But I do know Malaysian comics who, you know, have jokes about the government, you know, like political comedians. And they're all still alive, so I guess things have gotten better. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Perfect. But, uh, so what happened that you decided that you were going to go to Northwestern to study uh, philosophy and engineering? I mean, Northwestern is an impossible school to get into if you're the best student at the best private school in Beverly Hills or New York City. Uh, and you're a kid, like you said, not a rich kid from Malaysia. And so what was that process like of deciding to come to the United States? And like, what made you want to come to the United States? Well, I, you know, as someone who did well in school, you, you are encouraged to apply for like scholarships, you know, your country, as your country, uh, you know, people are giving out, you know, after you graduate. So I applied for all of them. I got one and then they just stipulated, well, you, congrats, you got the scholarship and this is for the US. So if you... You, you need to apply to unis and universities in the US. If you get it, then we'll send you there. But if you don't get it, too bad. So I was oh, like, you okay, mean the, great. the oh, so it was a it was a state scholarship. It was like a state sponsored scholarship, or uh, uh, no, it was it was a private scholarship. Yeah. Got it. That that was yeah. geared toward getting kids to go to school in America. So so that was an external thing. It actually wasn't driven. By you internally, America. At first. No, no, I amazing. I had to Google like what American cities were like. Wait, San Fran. I know there's San Francisco. I know there's Boston, New York. I know New York and LA at that point. You know, that's a no. That's a kind of amazing, right? Now, like thinking of, about yeah, it, it was thrusted into this foreign. You know, I was maybe even thinking like maybe Taiwan could be a place I go to. You know, I was very just thinking Asia. Very provincial then, in a way. I mean, provincial thinking, yeah. which makes sense because why would you think you're going to end up in America, right? Yeah, it's impossible. You watch it in the movies. That's it. And were there comedians in America that you knew and and, and liked or was it not even in your head? I, I, I liked certain comics at the time. I, I loved Eddie Murphy. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Oh, man, I I keep watching that one, the orange jumpsuit, that that one. Yeah, uh, Delirious. Oh, Delirious raw, is the best. Too, but no, Delirious, Delirious is the was, best. Yes, yes. Well, it was yeah. so funny. And that was, I think that was the point Louis C.K. just started getting big. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know you could talk about comedy that's so real. And, but, you know, I never thought I could ever do it. So I just watched it, enjoyed it on YouTube. Russell Peters was really big at the time too. Yes. So those He's been on the, Russell's been on this podcast. Which oh, really? Great. It was great oh. talking to him. Yeah, fascinating. He's very funny. It's very funny. So Russell Peters, Louis C.K., Eddie Murphy, those are the comics I liked and around the time. And I realized... That I got the American uh, the scholarship thing. I was like, okay, great. Now let, let's do some research. Let's see what universities and they they make sure to t they tell you that the universities you choose to apply to need to be of a certain ranking because sure. they're just not going to sponsor you to go to any like like state school in the in the in the US, right? That's a waste of money, right? So you had to work really hard. I did the SATs and uh, I had to do all this research and. I'm glad it paid off, you know. I I I love uh, the experience there. I I didn't exactly love the university experience, but I love, you know, just being in the US, the whole US experience. Oh, so wait, I but I so you go to Northwestern and from what I've read, you majored in engineering and philosophy. Yeah. And yeah. was that sort of in conversation with your parents like you had to do the engineering thing or you wanted to do the engineering thing cuz it doesn't feel like anyone would have pressured you to do philosophy. 
Yeah, well, engineering, yes, I was always interested. And also I grew up in an environment where everybody did something practical, right? So that was a no-brainer. I'll, I'll, I'll choose it. And also the scholarship, you know, there are certain stipulations. They're not going to pay for you to do art history. You right. know, <laughs> that's again a waste of money. So uh, to them, it's a waste of money. So yeah. they, uh, I, I ch chose major engineering, which I, I was um, pretty interested in it. I was decent at math and physics and, and science-based subjects. So I, I chose it. And philosophy just sounded really interesting, you know, I... That's another new thing to me. Like in Malaysia, growing up, like you, 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 everything's very exam, exam based. Sure. You know, you, you're very sure. rote learning, memorizing, uh, math based. You're never really encouraged to express an opinion. You, you never, we never had assignments where it was writing papers, you know, or, or, or arguing about a point. So when I took a philosophy class, I was like, oh, this is this is nice. I can, I, I, I'll. I'll get a taste of the western yes. you know but it's also so hard itself. i mean it's also the but i guess the math like you know the math proof part of philosophy can be daunting but i guess if you're a math person it's not so daunting so oh no i didn't get to that level i just read plato you know <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome good yeah. but northwestern is like um basically the best theater school other than yale like it's the best program you could go to did you do did you take advantage of any of that stuff how did how did you fit in socially? Did you get in with the theater kids? And how did you start? Oh, no, just who no, gets huh? in with the theater kids? Who? I mean, most right. theater kids in Northwestern grew up with such wealth and, and, and privilege. And it's not their fault. It's, it's great to grow up. I wish I grew up wealthy, but they were just, just worlds apart, you know? Most right. theater kids, the fact that they can spend 40 grand a year doing theater, you know, that, that says already like, in that, uh, about their family situation, right? So I was more in tune with the, you know, yeah, middle-class people, but not super wealthy, you know? They were from, like, parts of Illinois, you know, like, r rural parts of Illinois. Did you start thinking of yourself, though, as you're taking this stuff? And I know you worked as an engineer afterwards, but I also read you started doing comedy then. So how did it happen that you're at school and you take this sort of insane leap to start doing stand-up? You know, at school, I think it started from, I went to camp, I, I got to campus and I was like, let's just try everything, you know, I'm, I'm in a foreign place. And I ended up auditioning for this black sketch group um, who were, they were trying to do something like The Chappelle Show. Every year they had a show like The Chappelle Show. It's very racially, uh, racial skits, which they, and they always needed an Asian person, right? To, to, to have every race they can make fun of. So I got into that group. It was really fun. I struggled in a lot of places because, you know, the sense of humor in a different culture, like you said, it, it's tough. So I realized, okay, I really need to, if I want to keep doing this, I need to get better at this. And I also like making, realize, oh, making people laugh is, is, is really fun. And I'm, decent at it so let me try doing stand-up they had a show once a year and after they had a show that's in like february then it's off they don't meet to, to do, do improv or sketches until the next year so when when we finished the show i started just doing stand-up by myself just at a coffee shop open mic in evanston illinois you know wow well also for people who don't know that nor northwestern goes longer so like if it ends in february they, they have another sort of like their semesters go longer yeah, yeah. We do trimesters. It's these trimesters different than most colleges. So like February, there's still a lot of the school year after that that you'd be up there. And then were you going... So you started just on your own? Did you bring friends or did you just go alone to an open mic? Uh, at first, there were friends. I think 
I think I joined this stand-up comedy uh, association on campus. And then nice. at first you just go with friends because it's just less daunting, right? But then after a while, a lot of those people drop out yeah. because they realize, okay, I've done it now. It's enough. Or they didn't really like it. But I just had this obsession, I guess. And oh, I was so, so bad at it. I was so bad at it the first few times. But I still, I still kept going. What do you mean you were... Uh, were you bad at it in a way that you recognized... I can solve this. Uh, I'm bad at it because there's something. I but but it's. No, I, I did it for a year and a half, uh-huh. and like, I and I did it like five nights a week for a year and a half, and wow. and I so I, and I realized somewhere in there. Okay, I I see it, but then at the end of the year and a half, I realized if I want to get great at this, I will have to devote my entire life, but and I didn't quite love it enough to devote my and I had another life, but yeah. So was it like you started realizing? I can figure this out? What brought no, you back to the stage? It's more, I didn't even know I was bad at the time. I got a few chuckles. It's only looking back now. I was like, man, I was bad. But that's when funny. you are starting out, you get a small laugh. You're like, oh my God, that, that's great. You know? And 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 uh, I don't know. I, I just kept on like, I didn't bomb bomb. I always got a few chuckles. So I was like, okay, maybe I, I didn't bomb this time. I didn't bomb last time. I got a few more laughs this time. I can see myself slowly improving. And did you write? Were you how? What was your practice of writing back then? Were you just writing from the stage, or were you getting up early to write? Like, what what were you doing to write your act? Don't remember now. It wasn't on the stage. Wasn't writing on stage for sure. I think that came uh, maybe like only like a couple of years back, where I have an idea that I just go do a new material night and I just riff it up on stage. But yeah, it was every it was very painstakingly word for word written down and very oh, unnatural. Word for word, and then, word for word and then memorizing, like word for word. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's so hard because because of then that if, fear, you have that fear. You, oh, I just want people to laugh, you know. But then if so, you know if someone rustles a paper in the in the crowd when you're word for word, it can really fuck you up. Because... Oh, definitely, definitely. I didn't know how to improvise and. You, you clam up on stage the first few times. The first year, you're like tense. You know, first four years, I was tense. Yeah. And did did something about it make you feel alive in a certain way that other stuff did not? Yeah, definitely. You know, when you're on stage and people are looking at you, there's that rush, that, that, that adrenaline, right? And maybe I'm addicted to that. Yes, no, sure. And did you tell people at school about it or was it a secret to you uh, that you were keeping? Did you tell your fan, like, did you tell your friends back home? Yeah, I posted on my Facebook, you know, like videos. Oh, you would like your first bad sets? Ah, yeah. Oh God, oh God, em- embarrassing. And then also this is a campus audience which are very forgiving, you know? Yeah. On yeah. campus, very forgiving. Did the sa- Took the same material back to Malaysia at a, at a open mic night at, at a very swanky club called Zook. They don't run it anymore, but it's a, people pay like good money to get in. And there's like people who work in offices, people who have no time for your bullshit, shitty act. And they're Asian too, so they'll let you know. You know, <laughs> sometimes playing an Asian room is like playing an urban room in the Western world. They, like they will let you know. They'll be on their phone. They'll be talking. They'll just start booing you. <laughs> you know? They'll start booing, really? So was that... so? Yeah, I understand that shock of going from like a very friendly, I mean, almost like the difference between going from like one of those experimental comedy rooms to Caroline's or something. And yeah. like the difference is just gigantic, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you realized, oh, I got to get better at this then? Uh, Yeah, 
after the, that one gig in Malaysia, I was like, "Oof, God, okay, let, let's 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 keep working on this." And when you were so when you were first doing this, Nigel, um, did did you start thinking maybe I'm going to do this for my life, like maybe I'm going to do this for a living? I I had a, an ambition, a goal of that, you know, and uh, yeah, I always I always had that belief, but I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I knew like if I work really hard at it, this can be a reality where this is all I do. And when you took your job, when you got a job out of college and it was a straight job and a hard job, like an engineering yeah. job. I worked at Deloitte after college. Right. You know? So, I mean, that's yeah. a hard job to get and a very big deal. Like people want that kind of job. Yeah. But I didn't, didn't enjoy it. It was, it was uh, I mean, I think that kind of job, it's, it's, it's for certain people. Some people like the stability it offers. And then, you know, you work here a certain years, a certain number of years, then you can buy a property and you can start a family. Yeah. And it's great if you want that uh, lifestyle, which can be nice. You know, you don't have to worry ever again about money, you know? And, and so what was it like to make the decision? I mean, what happened that you got to the decision point of, I can't live this life. I have to try to live this other life. It was just comedy was more fun and I, ne I never stopped doing it. Even working at Deloitte, I was still performing at, you know, I think at, at least three nights a week in Chicago. And, uh, and were you starting to get like email signups for an email? Like, were you starting to build a bit of a following for yourself? Not, not yet. Not in Chicago. No, I was, but I was starting to get booked at bar shows, you know? That's a big, no, that's a huge thing. That's a huge thing. Starting to do small things at the comedy club. There's the Laugh Factory and Zanies, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I started doing some spots there, and then started getting asked back. I was like, okay, this. Oh, so you passed? Something. So that's what happened. You passed at the sh two big clubs in Chicago. I passed at Laugh Factory. Yeah, I passed Zanies, but only the Rosemont one. Right, that's funny. <laughs> Zanies yeah, Chicago. That's Zanies Rosemont. I understand, but so yeah. you passed, but you did pass professional clubs, which let you know. And for people who don't know, like it's very, very, very hard to pass a club. Like I was forty when I had my thing of where I decided to do it. So like I literally was doing open mics when Ocean's 13 was coming out that I wrote. And wow. uh, I was, but I passed a, you know, a club in New York and it was as big a deal to me to pass Boston Comedy Club as like that Ocean's was coming out. You know what I mean? So I yeah, understand. Yeah, it's crazy. And Boston Comedy Club probably paid you like what, 20 pounds, 20 dollars? Nothing, nothing. Like, you know, <laughs> not, no, you could just, you by passing it meant you could get up uh, at any of the real shows uh, yeah. and perform. You didn't have to do um, a new comics night or an open yeah. mic night. You were able to get up on a Thursday and mm -hmm. do seven minutes. And I still was like, holy shit, I passed. You know, I, it's a I huge know. thing. It is huge when you when you first meet the, I don't know how it works for you, but when you first meet the booker. Yeah, sure. And then they're like, yeah, you, you can come in. Are you free next week? Uh, oh and you, yeah, you try to play it cool or whatever. But so like, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, it's a very, very big deal. Uh, so you pass and then do you, what are the experts? Do you, are you talking at this time to any family back home? Like, do they know that this is what you're thinking about doing with your life? They, I've told them before, but they always w didn't really believe me because it was just very, a very foreign concept to them, right? Like per the performing arts in general, you know, I, I, my family grew up, they were very, you know, provincial like me. Yeah, and they all they wanted was for me to have a nice, stable, white collar job and make a decent living. So they never really believed it. They say, "Okay, okay, just do what you want in the evening." But as long as you keep a day job, that's fine. But then slowly, it was only after I moved to the UK where I I got even better at comedy and I made started making some uh, okay money from it. 
And I realized, okay, let's go part-time now, you know, part-time at a day job. And then they were like, okay, part-time's good. Keep the part-time job. You can do comedy at night. And then when I went full-time, they were like, okay, um, we're a bit worried about you. We're a bit worried about you, son. <laughs> and how many years ago was that that you went full-time comic? Very recent, 2019, September 2019. And had you- I went full-time. And that was already after you'd been on television? I've done a couple small things, but you know, you, you can't sustain yourself. Uh, no, but it's a marker, right? It's a marker yeah. of professionalism of that, 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 because I mean, I often say this on here, but which is, you know, the line between being an artist and being delusional is very thin. So, yeah. right. I still feel I'm delusional every now and then, you know, <laughs> no, it's, it's just a very thin line. Like who yeah. are we to think it takes a really long time to think like that there is validity in what you're doing. And, there, and although I never looked for the outside validation, meaning I was going to do the work regardless, and I did, it'd be a lie to say that when you get the validation, it's not useful because it is useful, I think, in, in yeah. terms of telling you it's not only your crazy dream that, well, someone else sees some validity mm. in this. And that helps you put up a bulwark against the doubts, I think, right? In some yeah. way. Yeah. Like, yeah. Agree. Definitely agree that keeps you going. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't realize you didn't, that you totally didn't quit Deloitte until like a year ago, two year oh, and no, a half it wasn't, ago. I mean, it wasn't Deloitte at the time. It was just at a startup in London. But yeah, day but job. But still, that you didn't quit startup, yeah. until then is uh, kind of amazing that you, that you kept it going that long. Talk about how you created the character of Uncle Roger. These are the questions I have, and then you just talk about it. Which is, did you do the character for your family and friends your whole life and then realize, oh, this is something? Or was it specifically like, I want to create a certain thing to accomplish a certain thing? Like, how did it come to be? At first, uh, in 2019... uh no, in 2020, one of my goals was to grow my social media and I want to try different types of comedy and character comedy was a goal of mine. I just didn't know what type of character. I just didn't know what type of character. So I was just thinking, okay, I want to do character comedy sometime yeah. this year. And on, on the podcast, we just one day we started riffing about what would an Asian uncle do in specific situations? You know, what would a middle age... Uh, it wasn't an Asian uncle at the time. It was just what would a very Asian person do if he were a real estate agent, you know? What would he right. do if he worked again at McDonald's? So I just started doing the accent and be like saying all the Asian things, you know, like, oh, you have a peanut allergy. You're so weak. So weak. So weak. Peen- you scare peanut. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> Something well, so, like that, which is... But when you say uh, Asian, I mean, you're talking about someone who's... can't. You've said Cantonese a lot. I've heard you mention that word sometimes or... Man, like, was it a Chinese person, not a generic Asian person? Like, um, I would say it's just what I grew up with. So, yes, uh, in Malaysia, a lot of us in Kuala Lumpur, the capital of Malaysia, where yes. I grew up, a lot of us spoke Cantonese. Yes, so we had a lot of like Hong Kong influence, but we also had a lot of like Chinese influence because my my parents they watched Chinese dramas and all the stuff from mainland China. So it was an amalgamation of everything. And so, yes, that Uncle Roger accent is a very 50% Hong Kong, 50% Malaysian, you know, but then again, the Malaysian Chinese accent has a lot of like Hong Kong influence as well. So it's all a very mishmash, just a, just a fun accent for me to do that, that people can tell it's Asian, but has a lot of Malaysian influence in it. So you're riffing, what's your podcast called? It's called Rise to Meet You. 
Right, that is yeah. I see on your coffee mug. So, which oh, I'll, yes. I'll, I'll order one. Merch. I'll, merch. I'll, I'll order some to. merch. But uh, so you're riffing about the character on the uh, podcast. Yeah, and and wh- how do you know? And it just does it light you up somehow as you start riffing? Well, about it? like what happened? We had three characters, and then we would do. I, I had three characters, but only one people liked. You know, I had another character called. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, it's called, I call him Nunchuck Jones, which is, uh, you know, far-right conspiracy theories, but a super Asian far-right yes. conspiracy theories. Nobody liked him. We did Zoom shows because of lockdown. We sold tickets to our Zoom shows, you know, five, ten pounds a pop, made a little bit of money that way. And then people came on. When I did the other characters, people were just quiet, but I did Uncle Roger. They were laughing. So I said, okay, there's something here. So it's like open micing the character. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. And yes. so the character So you stuck. started doing the character and you, did you name him Uncle Roger then? No, at first it was just uh, Roger, and then I realized, okay, let's let's develop this character. I want him to be older, so I call him like Uncle Roger. And then I texted. At first it was on the podcast; it was just audio only, right? So I wanted to do it on on video on my in, uh, social media. So I I texted my friends asking, send me a picture of your dad. My Asian friends asking them to send me a picture of your dad. I want to see what they wear. And uh, like bright colored polo was a very popular choice. Uh, the shirt you know, is just the, the greatest the jeans thing ever. And, and, and the belt phone holster, you know? So that's why well, I Well, what's so great is that he's so relatable. And I, this is a thing I sometimes talk to young writers about, which is like the more specific you are in the creating, the, literally the weirder you are at the actual real lockdown specifics of what they care about. It's the opposite of what you might intuit. You might intuit that you have to be broad in general to get a broad in general audience. But but in fact, if you're like hyper specific, people can relate that to these specifics that are totally different in their life because yeah. that character, the uncle who has his these this point of view, these customs, this way of looking at the world, he's obviously so lovingly and specifically drawn that I relate to my Jewish traditional, like I'm an atheist Jew, but like uh. I can relate it to all sorts of people who are geeky and nerdy about things in a life I grew up with who are nothing like your guy, but it connects somehow, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And I realized that, I think that's what sets the character apart from me. I think compared to the character, I'm not very specific. I'm just, you know. <laughs> Some random guy. Just a guy. You know? Yeah. But the character allows me to take... I mean, it's essentially me with a stronger accent, you know? Because, I mean, my accent's been a little bit more neutral now because I lived in the West a while. But it's actually me, but only the very, very Asian parts of me that's baffled at shit people do in the West. Right. Oh, in a way it lets out... You mean the stuff that you sort of... In order to not pass the comedy club, but in order to pass as a cool guy in America or London... Oh yeah, you've you, you know can't what I mean? say hi yeah, you know. Right. <laughs> I'm never gonna right. get laid. <laughs> right, that's what I'm saying. But yet you might think hi yeah and not be able to say it is yeah. what you're saying because you want to be you know you want to have friends. <laughs> though this is deep, but can I say though this is a deep important point, right? Which is the way in which we have to smooth ourselves out in life in order to fit in. Yeah, you're uh, there's a pain there's like you lose something by doing that, right? Definitely. Uh, and, and, you know, the word authenticity is a weird word, but you lose something foundational in a, in a way by having to bend to the culture. Yeah. 
and that's a, a, actually a good point and another reason why I realized I had to quit my day job because even in daily life, you have to lose a little bit. But in a corporate environment, you have to lose so much more because you have to be so much more uniform. You know, you, you, you can't say hiya on a day, but imagine saying hiya in, in the boardroom, giving a PowerPoint, you know, that's even worse. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. But, but so yeah, so you had to, and then, but this character kind of refuses to bend to the ways of the times. Because yeah. he's not clueless. This is what I find fascinating. I've spent a lot of time thinking about Uncle Roger. That, and, wow, and thank you. <laughs> well, because he's not clueless, man. You're not mocking him. Well, especially I watched the thing where you talked about people saying it was racist. But like he knows that people don't agree in the culture with his point of view. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know. He knows about being woke. He just decides he's not going to be woke. Yeah. Consciously. I think he's aware. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or he, so it, he knows uh, being vegan is good for the environment, but he just loves meat too much and thinks it's a dumb choice. You know. Right. Vegan, when yeah. when someone comes to the cart and they want to order something, he the way in which he, and 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 there's something about the id of the character that I think, as I say, and along with the sweetness that uh, people really relate to. So you you start to piece it together. You do this work very actorly, writerly work of like research you realize what he would wear you come up with the phone case thing and do you have a sense that this thing is maybe going to really take off uh, no i was just like this is fun let's just do do some i need, I need content ideas always let's just do a few videos as him and, and how many followers did you have at that time like before before uncle roger my youtube was at nine thousand. okay this is so right so you had like 9,000 YouTube followers yeah. and TikTok, very small, I imagine. Compared. Maybe 80,000. Right. Yeah. So some audience on TikTok at that time. Yeah. And yeah, 50K on Instagram, 40 something K on Instagram. Right. Yeah. So you had a, 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 a moderately successful comedian's following, like a, yeah. you know, uh, and then how fast did it just take off? Well, well in June, 2020, I was still at 9,000 and then I ended 2020 with 3 million on YouTube. So it was just, it, it caught fire everywhere on every single platform, Reddit, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, 9gag, uh, uh, Lad Bible, everything. Every, everybody reposted me. I was in every single newspaper in every Asian country, you know, Korea, Indonesia, Philippines, Taiwan. And what happened back home when, like, did your friends from home, not the ones who asked you to pay their kids school, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, did you get any feedback from, 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 people yeah. that you grew up with or went to college with or any they of that? Were, they were telling me, holy shit, my mom just shared your video with me. You know, my, my, my aunt, who I never talked to, just shared your video with me in the family group chat. And that's when I realized, you know, the, uh, the accent actually makes me more accessible to Asian people, to Asians in Asia, you know? Yes. Yeah, and, and even, even my own parents, they, they've seen me do stand-up before in Malaysia and my dad was like, my dad and mom, they... They weren't great in English. So my dad was like, yeah, I didn't really understand what you said up there for a whole hour, but I just laughed when other people laughed. You know? oh, <laughs> because right. I, I sound like this. And to an Asian person who grew up in Asia, like this is not very decipherable. You need subtitles. It's too oh, neutral. It's, you know, it's the accent's too neutral. But doing the Asian accent, actually, my parents can finally understand my jokes. It's the first thing they laugh That's at. hilarious and amazing and great. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So well, no, it's why Jackie Mason scored so well with like my ancestors because he his Jew the way the pattern that he used was very familiar to them from home in a way that a David Letterman would be much harder to uh, to relate to. Did were you concerned at all about the way white folks were going to take in the character once the character started becoming so successful? Yeah, of course, there's that worry, you know. But you know, as an artist. You can only control what you put out. You can't control how yes. people will interpret your work, right? It's not like you go to the museum and there's a plaque next to it saying, oh, the clock symbolizes this. You can't tell people what your intentions are. You just have to believe that most people are kind people and not dicks. And, and it's been right so far. You know, when I posted the Uncle Roger Halloween challenge, I dressed up as Uncle Roger and I said... Um, if you're white, you know, you can still dress up. Just don't do the accent, you know, be respectful. And you know what? I received a thousand emails and I would say all of them have been super respectful, you know, and I would like to think most people are decent, kind people. You know? Yeah, it's a great way to think. I think the second point, and I think it's very important to, to know, if you, as an Asian artist or as a minority artist, if you keep like thinking, if you keep guiding your decisions based on what white people think, that's terrible. That's that's even worse. That's you oppressing yourself, you know? So as long as I do the thing and it, it passes my conscience and it's cel celebratory of my culture, I don't really care what white people think, you know? Yes, most of the people are kind, but even if they aren't, it's like, I'm not going to let this white gaze define me. I understand that yeah. uh, as well as a white person can understand it. Um, uh, white people uh, viewing it as a caricature and, and giving them license to laugh at somebody like that. And then really the Asian people being critical of you for that is kind of the, 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 the further out question, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that goes back to the point, like just because I do a character like this, I, I, and I hope, and it's been proven, hopefully most people will laugh at the punchlines of, of, of what I'm saying. And if you look at when uh, a neutral organization, like say Lad Bible, they're a meme page, right? So they, sometimes they take my videos and they post it on their page. You can look at the comments. Those are people who don't already follow me, who don't already like me, you know? So you look at what they're saying. If it's white people just laughing at, ha ha ha, Chinaman, you know, then you'll see the comments be like, oh, Ching Chang Chong, Chinaman, so funny, you know? But most of the comments are actually, they're laughing at Jamie Oliver. They're saying, yes. oh, this guy's so funny. And uh, they're, they're quoting punchlines that I wrote, right? I have a line in there that I just make fun of how, how wet his rice is, how oh, wet yeah. Jamie Oliver's rice is. And I say, this rice looks so wet, you can see your reflection inside. Like Mulan's going to start singing when she sees this rice, which is a great roast joke, you know? Yes. And, and most people just quoted that, you know? And I think that's why I, I'm very hopeful and optimistic that people are, are laughing at the right things. And then what about the question I was going to ask? Because, you know, Andy Kaufman got pretty sick of doing Locke Gravis and wanted people to understand him for something other than this character that he, he created. Uh, are you, on the other hand, like I know when I'm going scrolling TikTok, I like consistency. I like when the woman who says, okay, says, okay, in her video. Like I want, I want, if I'm there, like I want the shot of heroin when I want it, you know. <laughs> I want that, right? I want an Uncle Roger video if I'm going to your page. But are you at all worried about that being a thing that could pigeonhole you? And, or are you like, fuck that. Like most people never get to ride something like this. And if I can ride it, I'm going to ride it. Like, how do you think about it? 
I think I think that's both. There's sentiments from both of those camps. I think right now I'm not I'm not sick of doing the character yet, so I'm gonna keep doing it, and it's still really really fun. It it's an avenue for me to talk about things I care about, you know, like food or like Asian things, because honestly, in in the Western world, there really isn't a platform like this. I as a comic at my level in the UK, you do the sort of like panel shows where you talk about like British current events, which I'm not super interested in, you know. So this is a great platform for me, and yeah, if if I at a point where I do get sick of the character, or if I want to move on to different projects, then I think as an artist you have to evolve, and you will lose fans, but you'll also gain new ones. So I try to look at it like that. I mean, you have to do the Uncle Roger movie before you get sick of it. I think that's. I hope so. I hope that. I hope that'll are, happen. Are you writing it? Are you writing the Uncle Roger movie? Uh, no, but I'm in talks with maybe some scripted thing that involves Uncle Roger, like a, maybe a sitcom type thing, you know. But an Uncle Roger movie, I would love some for something like like a Borat style movie, but Uncle Roger, that would be amazing. Okay, so you're not sick of the character. You still like doing the character. Uh, earlier when we talked about having a goal for the year, I, I always like to ask people, what is your routine for checking in with yourself? Like, I meditate twice a day. I journal every morning. Like, <laughs> w- do you have any sort of routine way that you check in on things or no? Uh, no, I just take a long shower and sometimes <laughs> my, my progress, goal progress thoughts pop out. Like, oh, how, how, how far am I along with this? You know, <laughs> so no, yeah, that's, I'm a very uh, instinctual person. I just go with the flow. Also, when I was in my twenties, I wasn't meditating twice a day or journaling <laughs> every day. I wish I were, but I, it happened later for me in my twenties. I was just in a flow state a lot of the time too. So it's flow state though. Like you're not, you're not trying to at first come up with this stuff from your intellect, you're in a flow state and then you'll apply your intellect, but the the sort of ideas you just come sort of very naturally. Well, sometimes I take a day out to plan maybe the next content ideas for the next eight weeks. And then uh, I have I have goals. I'm like, I need to make a new video every week. That's a little goal of mine that I try to hit and I, I managed to hit that. And I realized when Uncle Roger blew up, I, I was telling myself I need to make sure I'm still relevant uh, three months from now, you know, if, if, to make sure I, I write this virality. And now it's January and people are still talking about, I went viral in July and now it's January. People are still talking about Uncle Roger, still buying my merch, still watching the videos. Yeah. Uh, so I think I've, I've hit that. So I just got to keep, keep it going. Nice, nice work. Last question. Did Gordon Ramsay reach out to you in any <laughs> yes. way? He left a comment that I pinned on my YouTube video he tweeted at me, and also I'm I'm uh, he his production company reached out, and we'll see if we can work together on something. Yeah. Oh, that's great. What did he? What was his comment? He said, uh, "Glad you approve, Uncle Roger." And then his tweet was, "I my in my Twitter I said um I had a joke in there saying uh, the video the joke in the video was like oh Gordon Ramsay has two walks you know Uncle Roger I only have one walk uh, I'm faithful to my one walk but Gordon is a walk fuck boy. <laughs> so, that lines in the thing actually I yeah, yeah. that lines in the in the piece. Yeah, it is. And then Gordon replied with, yes, I have two walks because I stole one from Jamie Oliver for using chili jam in his fried rice. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, pretty good. He has a good sense of humor. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. good. Uh, Nigel Ung, uh, thank you so much for being here. People can find you um, on social media, obviously. Uh, yep. You can find me at, at Mr. Nigel Ung, M-R-N-I-G-E-L-N-G, or just search Uncle Roger and I will pop up with my orange. And ball. you can find me... Uh, I'm now on TikTok, but uh, it's not something I can promise I'm going to do all the time. But uh, you can find me there. You can find me uh, at Brian Koppelman on Twitter uh, or Instagram. And if you want to email me, you can email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com. 
but don't send me any script ideas or any proposals for what Uncle Roger should do in his videos <laughs> because Nigel has it well, uh, well sorted. All right. Thank you, everybody. We will see you next time.